Thank you. That was fun. It's fun to... Uh, we sing a song about how worthy he is of our praise and how it would be uh, comparing him to Mary who opens up the alabaster perfume and says it's worth it. And so it's fun to follow that right up with specific examples of why God's worthy of our praise tonight. That's, that was fun. Let me get situated. This, uh, on Wednesday, I walked into Eddie's office. And he was working on his sermon, and I interrupted him and decided I just, sometimes it's nice to get a little diversion. Hopefully you thought it was nice to get a little diversion. We started talking, though, and Eddie started just kind of talking about preaching and the role of preaching and what the job of preaching is. Eddie, you said something that I thought was profound. I'm going to share it with everybody. It won't be in your words. It'll be in mine. But Eddie started talking about how... When you preach a text, you study the text, but you want to do more than just give how the text informed you. You want to talk about how the text has transformed you as the preacher, right? And so when Eddie said, when he's studying, he's wanting first and foremost, he wants that, the text to change him and then to be able to share with you how God is changing him through the text. I thought it was good, too. I thought it was good, too, Eddie. The interesting thing, and... Uh, it, it, it got me thinking about this guy named Richard Baxter. And Richard Baxter was a pastor in the 1600s. I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote The Reformed Pastor. It's, um, it was written in 16, I think, 45? No, let me see. 1655. He was 41 years old when he wrote it. Richard Baxter was, this, he was like I said, he was 41 years old. He was a country church, relatively, I'm 35, so he's six years older than me when he wrote this book. Country church in England, relatively insignificant person. And he was uh, called and invited to go speak at this pastor's conference. And this pastor's conference was in London. So here was this little young country preacher who was going to go out to London. He was going to preach this sermon to all the big pastors, right? The, I imagine it would be like me walking in and, and seeing Adrian Rogers and Jerry Vines and John MacArthur's and thinking that I would have something to share with these guys. So I imagine it was somewhat intimidating, but I want to read you an excerpt, and you'll see it's not intimidating. He didn't seem intimidated. Uh, and what he wrote is, it's, honestly, it scares me as a pastor. But uh, I mean, it was written in 1645, so the, the language is, is steep. But let me, let me read it to you and try to Understand how crazy it would be for a 41-year-old man to write this to the pastors, the top pastors of his day. He said, Take heed to yourselves, lest you perish while you call others to take heed of the perishing, and lest you famish while you prepare food for them. He says, Many have warned others not to come to that place of torment while they hasten to it themselves. Many a preacher is now in hell who hath a hundred times called upon his hearers to use the utmost care and diligence to escape it. Can any reasonable man imagine that God should save men for offering salvation to others while they refuse it themselves, and for telling others those truths which they themselves neglect and abuse? As many a tailor goes in rags, 
that makes costly clothes for others. Many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he has dressed for others the most costly dishes. Believe it, brethren. God never saved any man for being a preacher, nor because he was an able preacher, but because he was a justified and a sanctified man, and consequently faithful in his master's work. It's a fearful thing to be an unsanctified churchman, but much more to be an unsanctified preacher. Oh, what aggravated misery this is to perish in the midst of plenty, to famish with the bread of life in our hands while we offer it to others and urge them to take it. To take heed, therefore, to ourselves first, that you be that which you persuade your hearers to be, and believe that which you persuade them to believe, and heartily entertain that Savior you offer to them. think about how those pastors respond to that 41-year-old guy. There had to be a sense of, who is this young guy to come in here and tell us this? But as I thought about it, I thought, this guy is just, just like John the Baptist in the passage we're going to look at today. We're going to read John chapter 3. We're going to look at the whole passage, and you're going to see that the kind of brass that Richard Baxter showed is the same kind of brass that John the Baptist shows. Tonight, my responsibility to extend that same brass to you and to me. Right, because it doesn't escape me that Wednesday night, I'm sorry, Sunday night, only the most committed people show up to a Sunday night service. Right, Sunday morning this will be full, but only the people who are the spiritual giants of our days come to the Sunday night service. But spiritual giants, supposed spiritual giants, can miss the truth just like, uh, just like the unchurched, right? It's my job to warn you that being a ministry leader or a deacon or even a church council member does not earn you a shred of credit with God. It's my job tonight to point this text to Pastor Eddie and to Pastor Johnny and to myself and say that possibly being a pastor is a very dangerous thing for our souls because it tempts us to develop a spiritual arrogance. It's my job tonight to call us to repent from that spiritual arrogance. Let's read Matthew 3 together and ask God as we're reading to use Matthew's warning to strike a healthy fear in our hearts. Start in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and had a leathern girdle around his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then he went out, Uh, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance." 
And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the shaft with an unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee into Jordan, or from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbid him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Jesus answered, said, said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Dear Lord, we ask that you open our ears and you open our hearts. We ask that you knock down the pride that will try to convince us that we're not like the Pharisees and Sadducees, that will try to convince us that we don't have a need for your salvation. Instead, we pray that you soften us, that you make us hungry for you, and give us a abiding and deep hope in your Son, the new Israel, the faithful Son. In your name I pray, amen. All right. I'll open my, I read from my notes, but it's helpful sometimes to have the Bible actually open from me, in front of me. Let, me. let me tell you that tonight's passage is just two main sections. In verses 1 through 12, we're going to see John the Baptist. He's the herald of the Christ, the herald of the coming king, and he's going to give a scary message. He's going to look at the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's going to tell them that you're not ready for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah is coming to you to bring judgment. And the second section we're going to see is in verses 13 through 17. And that's when the Messiah comes. Most of our text is going to be hard and a scary text. And when we get to 13, we're going to see that Jesus does bring hope. So tonight what I want to do is have us really to take serious the call to repentance. But I also want us to take serious the hope of salvation in Jesus. If I were going to boil all of that down into a single sentence, this one big idea for us to walk away with, it would be that Matthew 3 is going to call us to repent of our religious arrogance and to be baptized into the life and death of Jesus. And Jesus is the new and better Israel. Let me say it again. That Matthew 3 calls us to repent of our religious arrogance and to be baptized into the life and death of Jesus, the new and better Israel. All right, let's... Uh, Start walking through the text. Let me, this was a hard text to, to write a sermon for. And the reason it was so hard is because there's so much 
good, meaty stuff. And I wrote a sermon, and I got about halfway through, and it was 20 pages, and it was only halfway through, and my, my wife said, you got to start cutting some stuff. And so there's a lot of cutting that's happened. There's a lot that's been left on the floor. But um, that'll explain to you, one, is why we're going to hit some of the high notes, and we're not going to hit everything, because there's not time to hit everything in a passage like this. But hopefully you'll see some of the beauty and the coherence of Matthew's just incredible picture of the herald of the king and of uh, Jesus, the king, when he comes to be baptized. So let's go ahead and start with John. I want to actually show you just a couple things about John. The first thing I want to show you is that John is the promised prophet. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And it's obvious there's two quotes that, that Matthew gives us. The first one is from Isaiah 43. And he says, uh, this is an actual direct quote. He says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. He says, John is the guy that Isaiah was predicting. But then he gives us another, not direct quote, but he starts to describe what Isaiah, what, I'm sorry, what um, John the Baptist looks like. He says, John the Baptist is wearing clothes with camel's hair, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. And he describes them almost exactly like we see that the prophet Elijah looks in the Old Testament. And there's a reason that he's doing this. It's because in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Bible promises that a prophet is going to come just like Elijah. Right? The very last paragraph, the very last two sentences of our Old Testament said the Messiah is coming and look for him, and you'll know he's coming when you see Elijah return. And so Matthew says, John the Baptist is just like Elijah. And if the herald of the king is here, then that means the king is near. The herald of the king is here, then we should be looking. The king is coming next. So the first thing he says about John the Baptist is, John the Baptist is the promised prophet that's going to make straight the ways of the Lord. The second thing I want to tell you about John the Baptist is what his role was, what he was doing. And what John the Baptist is doing is he's preparing the way for Jesus with a baptism of repentance. Paul calls it the baptism of repentance, right? John the Baptist says to repent and be baptized, right? Paul will say in Acts 19 that this is the baptism of repentance that John was offering. And so I think it's going to help us if I step back and say, what, what exactly is John doing? There's not a lot of talk in the Old Testament about baptism. So how are we supposed to understand what's going on here? So let me, let me point out a couple of things that are obvious. The first thing is baptism obviously is an admission of guilt, right? You see in verse 6, that the people who are coming to be baptized are confessing their sins, they're repenting, that their baptism is a recognition of guilt. Um, but there's something else that it's, it's more than just a nod of the head that I've made a mistake. It's a guilt that says, because of my guilt, I'm an outsider to God. Their baptism is suggesting that the sin that they've committed has made them separate from God, an outsider. All of the baptism, what's going on in, the, in John the Baptist's day is they're looking back on a story that happened in 2 Kings chapter 5. Are you familiar with the story of Naaman? Naaman was a general in the Syrian army. 
He's a, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. Very powerful guy. And the, and the Jews were afraid of him because of his power and his fame as a general. But Naaman gets leprosy. So he's got the boils and the skin problems. And Naaman's in some serious pain and trouble. And he has this little servant girl who happens to be a Jewish girl. And she says, Naaman, my God can heal that. She says, go, go into Israel and tell them your problem. And the prophets of God will heal you of your leprosy. And Naaman starts off arrogantly saying he won't do it. But eventually he goes and he meets um, Elijah, not Elijah, um, Elisha. Thank you, Eddie. He meets Elisha, and Elisha says to him, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and on the seventh time when you come up, your leprosy will be gone. Naaman does it. He dips himself seven times, and when he comes up, his leprosy is gone. And Naaman says, from this day forward, I'm going to denounce the gods of Syria, and I will follow the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the first time we see any sort of baptism in the, New, in the Old Testament. And after that, the Jews started using baptism as, baptism as a way for Gentiles to show that they're going to be washed of their sins, washed of their leprosy, but washed of their old life and associated with the Jews. It was their conversion rite. If you wanted to go from Gentile to Jew, you had to be baptized. So when John the Baptist comes to Israel and he says, you need to be baptized, something really strange is happening. Because these Jews aren't supposed to be being baptized. Jews don't need to be baptized because they're already Jews. Baptism is how a Gentile becomes a Jew. But what John the Baptist is saying to them is that you have been so wicked, so evil, Your sin has separated you from God that you don't even deserve to be called a Jew. You're an outsider. You're outside of the people of God. You're outside of the promises of God, the provision of God. Your sin has separated you, and you need to be washed just like Naaman the Syrian. Baptism was a way for them to reassociate themselves with the promises given to Israel. It was a condemnation that you haven't been a very good Israel. Seems at first that the, John's ministry is going really well. A lot of people are coming out to the Jordan and being baptized. But in verse 7, it takes a turn and it gets ugly. Because two groups of people show up. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these are the Jewish leaders of the time. Matthew's going to warn us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there's a chance that we're just like them. Probably one of the best explanations of who the Pharisees and Sadducees are, I found, was in a commentary by Dale Bruner. If you don't mind, I'm going to read it to you. He says, John's message now tells us that the major problem of the church is the church. As we see later in the teachings of Jesus, too, the chief problems of the people of God were not the Roman occupation or the external or political or economic social threats. The chief problems of the people of God were and always are the most visible representatives of the people of God, the religious leadership. The leaders in Jesus' time consisted mainly of two groups. 
First, there was this, the Pharisees. They were the lay group of the serious, as we might call them. They were the separatists or the Pharisees. And the second were the leading clergies. They were the sophisticated Sadducees. So these two groups were respectively the laymen united for a biblical confession, and they're usually bitter enemies, the clergy united for a rele- relevant ministry. And each group believed itself to be the major locus of God's saving will in the people of God. These two serious groups are now, John 4 warns us, God's major opponents at his visit. Isn't that strange? The biggest opponents that Jesus faces at the inauguration of his ministry are the religious leaders of his day. It wasn't Rome. It was the Jews he came to save. And it wasn't even the, the lowly Jews. It was the Jews who were in the temple. It was the Jews who were the back-to-the-Bible movement Jews. It was the Jews who were pastors and priests and scribes. The Jews who had spiritual leadership over their people were the biggest obstacle to Jesus' ministry. And I think that's the reason why tonight we need to be very careful to turn this passage back on ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, are we the spiritual leaders who are just like the Pharisees and Sadducees? Are we the spiritual leaders who have developed a spiritual arrogance that keeps us from accepting the coming of the Messiah? What happens when they come, the Pharisees and Sadducees come up to John, John gives them a really stern rebuke. He says to them, who warned you to flee the wrath that's to come? Remember, John has been telling people, if you want to be prepared to meet the Messiah, you need to be baptized. You need to repent and be baptized. When these guys show up to, be, to the baptism service, he says, who invited you? You don't deserve to be here. You're not a proper candidate for baptism here today. He tells the Jewish leaders, you don't deserve to be baptized today. And I want to show you two reasons why they couldn't be baptized. He says, the first one, well, I'll just read it to you here. He says, the first one is in verse 8. He says, bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. He's looking at the Pharisees and saying, a baptism of repentance means that it'll look like you've repented, and it doesn't. You remember the song, if you're happy and you know it? If you're happy and you know it, your life will surely show it? I think John was saying the same thing's true of repentance. If you're repentant and you know it, then your life will surely show it. And John says, if you're not repentant, then you're not a candidate for baptism. Incidentally, there's a reason why when we do baptism, you don't baptize yourself here. Right? The church is confirming in you some fruit of repentance. Right? Typically, you will have a pastor or a church leader that has met with you or talked with you and said, is there evidence of repentance in your life? 
Because baptism doesn't work if there's not repentance. If you're not repentant, you're not a candidate for baptism. Why is it that you think these Pharisees were unwilling to repent? Why couldn't they show fruit of repentance? Pride. That's right, Sister Alta. Their spiritual leadership, their spiritual position, has erected this sense of pride in them that made them think, I don't have anything to repent of. And that's the reason that those of us in this room who we attend extra church services on Sunday night, we're the people who go to deacons meeting and church council, or we're the pastors of the church. We're in so much of a risk of thinking we're spiritually advanced. We don't have anything to repent from. I have an aunt who is so, so sweet to me. Every time she sees me, she goes on and on about how proud of me she is. And she'll say, you're a pastor, and we're just so proud, and I've been to so many. And she just goes on and on and on. And I know that she's being sweet and that she's being kind. But what she doesn't real, realize is that I am tempted to think the same thing. My temptation is to be like, well, that's, you're right. <laughs> that's a good point you made. <laughs> I am pretty awesome. <laughs> It's easy. I mean, I opened up the Baker County Press this week, and I read the Baker County Press, and I see story after story of people who need to repent. Right? People who are arrested for drugs or people who have done something they need to repent. And if I go home and I have a harsh word with my wife, and I think, that's no big deal. Right? What Matthew and John the Baptist are saying that I can't be spiritually arrogant. I need to repent. If I want to be prepared for the coming of Messiah, spiritual arrogance is going to keep me from repentance. And it's the spiritually high people who are at the greatest risk of thinking, I don't really need a Savior. I don't have any problem that I need to repent from. There's another reason that Matthew, uh, or that John the Baptist tells them they're not candidates for baptism. We just read verse 8. Read, let me read with you verse 9. It says, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. These people felt that their spiritual pedigree somehow earned them status with God. I'm prepared for the Messiah because of who my parents are. God's not impressed with your parents. He wants you to repent. A couple weeks ago, we had a baby dedication here. There's a reason we do baby dedications here, not baby baptisms. Because we believe, just like John the Baptist, that the faith of your parents is irrelevant for you in, reg- in regards to preparing for the coming of the Messiah. You have to repent. If you go to heaven, or if you meet Christ and you say, but I'm a Rollerson, or I'm a Griffiths, that's so. Repent. 
You're a sinner is what you are. We believe that every person needs to repent as a prerequisite to baptism. John's focus isn't on the infants. John's focus is on the spiritually arrogant who think that, look at what I've done, look at who I am, look at my pedigree. I'm a pastor. Who's this little 41-year-old guy to tell me, the pastor of this great church in London, that I might be missing the Christ? Who is this person to tell me that I have sin in my life? That's just pure arrogance that keeps us from missing our need to repent. I want to show you one more thing that John the Baptist does. After telling these men that they're not candidates for baptism, his conversation turns even scarier. Right? These Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, you're not a candidate for baptism, and the Messiah's coming, and he's going to judge you. You see the judgment theme in John the Baptist's message in several ways. He says in verse 10, And now the axe is laid unto the root of the tree, and therefore every tree that bringeth uh, not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. If you don't show the fruit of repentance, God will cut you down. Not at the trunk, but at the root, completely destroying you, thrown into the fire. He says, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but the Messiah who's coming after me, he's mightier than I am. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost, which represents life, but also with fire, which represents death. The mighty one who baptizes with fire. And then he kind of explains, what does he mean, life and death, spirit and fire? And he gives this, he says his fan, if you have a newer translation, it might say winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner or into the storehouse, but he's going to burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. The role of the Messiah is going to be to separate the wheat and the shaft, to separate the repentant from the arrogant, the spiritually proud. And the spiritually proud will be thrown into the fire that is everlasting, is unquenchable. John means that to be scary. I sometimes feel nervous even talking about a Messiah that might judge someone or send someone to hell. It's not acceptable in our culture for sure. And so I feel this need to say, well, no, you, you don't, God's just all love. God's just all love. And I sometimes forget that God, the Messiah, has come to judge evil. Two, help, two quotes have helped me in this regard. Let me give you the first one's from Charles Spurgeon. He said, the, I'll say in this regard, I mean, my feeling, my desire to protect, to protect God and not to announce his wrath. Spurgeon's going to say, don't worry about that feeling. He says, the word of God can take care of itself. It will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. He says, see you that lion? 
They've caged him for, for his preservation. They shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered to protect the lion and what a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent on defending that lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart. Open the door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all of its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of adversity, uh, adversaries. Spurgeon reminds me, it's not my job to protect God. If God presents himself as one who brings life and death, that's God's prerogative. God doesn't ask for my defense. He asks for my faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Dale Bruner also helped me. He said, the kingdom of God is much more than the wrath of God, of course, but it's nothing less. So the coming of God in Scripture is always at least also the coming of burning judgment. A coming of the kingdom with judgment for evildoers does not exist except in the imagination of the sentimental. I'm sorry, I, I misread that. A coming of the kingdom without judgment for evildoers does not exist except in the imagination of the sentimental. He says, but the wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It's the love of God in friction with injustice. It's the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest selfishness. God's wrath does not contradict God's love. It proves it. He says a love that pampers injustice is not lovable. The truth is we need a God who judges sin and injustice and evil. If Jesus turned a blind eye to sin, he wouldn't be just and he wouldn't be holy. God promises one day a new creation that's free of all evil. But if God doesn't have the ability to discern evil or the power to judge evil, how could I possibly trust that he could create a world without it? Evil is against God's character. And that's good news for us. Because that means that there is a, there's waiting for us a world without evil. Altogether without suffering. John's message to this point, verses 1 through 12, has been be very careful. You are at risk of spiritual arrogance. You are at risk of thinking there's nothing for me to repent of. And if that's your position, then you are at risk of an unquenchable fire. The, the Messiah himself will separate you from the truly faithful and will cast you into hell. And this, it's scary. John wants us to be scared. In fact, 1 through 12, the first 12 verses of this chapter there's just this weight. There's these little rays of hope that pop in, but the sense of it is, oh no. Is there any hope? And then in verse 13, Jesus shows up. And there's this new sense. There's this new feeling. 
It's like the sun has come and drives out the clouds of despair, and we think, here's the Messiah, and he's everything John said, but he's more beautiful and exciting than I imagined. He is here with hope. I wanted to show you, for time, I'm only going to point out two things, two reasons why we can have hope in Jesus. From these, past, from these verses, 13 through 17, God, Matthew's going to show us that Jesus is the new and better Israel. He's going to show us that Jesus offers us a new and better baptism. And because of those two reasons, we can hope in him. In spite of the fact that I am deservedly destined for unquenchable fire, I can hope in the Messiah because he is a better Israel and because he offers a better baptism. Let's start with how we know he's a better Israel. Um, Remember that so far up until now, John the Baptist's message is that you guys, you Israelites, you failed. And so you need to be baptized as a way of saying that I'm not even, I don't even deserve to be called a Jew. Right? They're, they're putting themselves with the Gentiles because they said our entire nation has failed to live up to the requirements that God has given us. We failed. And then when the Jewish leaders come, it gets even harsher. The first 12 verses, it said, the first son of God, the nation of Israel, God is not pleased. God is not pleased with them. But then look what happens when Jesus is baptized. Jesus comes in. First he says to John the Baptist, you shouldn't be baptized. You don't have any sin. There's no reason for you to be baptized. But Jesus says, let me be baptized anyway. And he goes under the water. And he comes back out of the water. And the heavens part, the Holy Spirit descends. And God says, now that's my son. This is the one in whom I'm well pleased. The old Israel, 12 verses have just told us, I'm not pleased. And the axe is at the root of the tree. But Jesus... I'm well pleased in him. You say, well, why is that hope? Why is it hopeful for me to see that Jesus is the son in which God's well pleased? Well, that's all going to be made clear when we see what baptism's all about. I want to go through with you a little bit about why not only is Jesus the better, the better Israel, but he offers a better baptism. Look one more time at verse 13. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John tries to stop him. John says, you don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. And what we would expect is Jesus to agree. We would expect Jesus to say, you're right. I don't have any sin. I shouldn't be baptized. Baptism has to do with repentance, and I don't have any sin to be repentant of. Jesus is actually the only person who could have ever legitimately said, I don't have anything to repent of. But Jesus says, for now, let me be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus' baptism, in some way, is going to fulfill all righteousness. And so we want to know, what in the world does it mean that Jesus fulfills righteousness? Why in the world was Jesus baptized? And I think as we look at it, you're going to think, that's exciting. That's really exciting. There's two reasons. Jesus is baptized so that he can associate with us and so that he can teach us how to associate with him, right? Remember that baptism was the way that the Gentiles would associate with the Jews? Naaman was baptized, and he was inaugurated as a Jew. 
Baptism meant you're no longer a Gentile, you're now a Jew. Jesus comes and he's baptized in order to inaugurate himself or to associate himself with us. Adolf Schlatter is a scholar that says, Jesus is not baptized because he shares our need, but in order to share our need. Right? He's saying that Jesus didn't come, it wasn't baptized because he needed to, because, but because he wants to associate himself with us. When Jesus is baptized, he says, I'm going to walk arm in arm with these people. The lowly, the sinners, all of them, all of their evil, that's on me too. I'm taking it all a part of me. It's exciting that Jesus is baptized first to associate with us. But there's another thing that Jesus' baptism does is it teaches us that we can be baptized to associate with him. It provides a model for us. In Acts 19, you may remember the story, Paul meets these men and they've been baptized only with the baptism of repentance, the baptism that John offers. And he says, well, that's not enough. They need to be baptized into Jesus. They need to associate themselves, not simply with the old Israel, but with the new Israel. They need to be associated with Jesus. And here's why. Matthew says that it's because Jesus' baptism is with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which we know means life and death. And that's kind of clear, but it Paul even makes it more clear in Romans 6. Let me read to you what this means in Romans 6. Romans 6, he says, Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, baptism into Jesus means that we're associated with Jesus. The death of Jesus is our death, and the life of Jesus becomes our life. Here's the hope. The perfect son of God, the new and better Israel, was baptized so that he could be associated with us. And he offers us the opportunity to be baptized into him for his death to become our death and his new life to become our new life. Let me try to wrap all this back in, into perspective. And how do we read Matthew chapter 3? There's some of us out here who are just like the Pharisees. And so we don't have to go much farther than the first 12 verses and realize that God has nothing to do with us unless we're willing to repent. He wants us to admit that we have need of him and to repent, to confess our sins and repent. And some of, some of us in here will probably walk from this building and think, not me. I have nothing to repent from. If that's you, John the Baptist's message is directly tailored to you. You are a sinner, and judgment is coming. But there's another group in here. We hear John the Baptist's message, and we think, oh man, death is on its way, and it's on its way for me. And is there any hope? 
Is there any hope whatsoever? And that's where Jesus' baptism comes in and makes all the difference. Jesus' baptism comes in and says, I will associate myself with you, and I'm asking you to be baptized to associate yourself with me. Let my death take the place of your death. Let my life be your life. Find your hope, not in your spiritual accomplishments, but in mine. That's the hope that Jesus offers in baptism. Getting ready to pray and close before the music team and Pastor Johnny comes up. But let me ask you this. Have you been baptized into Jesus? Have you recognized that you are sinner? Leprous, same way that Naaman was a leper, that your soul is leprous and needs to be cleansed. Certain death awaits you. If so, baptism is a request that God will wash you, will count his death on your behalf and his life on your behalf. If you haven't been baptized, be baptized. Come up and say, I, I want to take that step. If you've been baptized in the waters, literally, you know, physically here at the church, you don't need to be baptized again, but you do need to continually reflect on the truth of this baptism. Continually realize that my tendency is to think that I don't have a need, but I do. And that my hope cannot be on my spiritual accomplishments. My hope cannot be on the fact that I'm a pastor or a deacon or a ministry leader. But my hope is purely and simply that Christ has pleased the Father. And that I can be associated with him. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege to be counted with you. We ask that you will break our pride, the tendency to think that we're okay, and open up the humility that says we want your righteousness and not our own. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Wow, what a powerful message, and what a powerful of, 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 of John the Baptist. Just, just speaking the Word of God and, and letting the Word of God fall. And, and I just ask you in just a moment as we're standing, we're going to have a time of, of decision, a, a time that maybe God has spoken to your heart. You know, the, the thing says there's basically there's, 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 there's two types of folk here tonight. Those who have that idea that, you know, arrogance, I don't need that. And you walk out that door and that's a dangerous place to be. But those of you that say, man, I need, I need to humble myself. I need to identify myself with Jesus Christ. You know, I just, it's just always amazed me that, that Jesus Christ himself was baptized to associate himself with us, to give us an opportunity to associate with him. You know, I share with people, you know, Jesus never asked us to do something. He didn't first do himself. And I think that's why he came in the flesh, so that he could lead the way. And I'm just asking, has the Holy Spirit spoken to your heart? Maybe you follow, maybe you've, you've, you, you've went to the waters, you've been baptized to Christ, but folks, that does not mean there's not still things that we need to deal with and to repent of. 
and um, that we might walk with Christ. Is the Holy Spirit spoken to you tonight? Maybe tonight you need to come to Jesus Christ for the very first time and say, Pastor, I, I just need to, I need to join in with Christ. I need His forgiveness. Folks, the altar's open. This is, this is what makes this really the most precious time. You know, there's one thing about hearing the Word, but are we going to do the Word? Are we going to let the Word act upon our life? And, and that's what this time is about. It's a time that, to step out and say, you know, to, to put some of that Word into action. You may need to come to the altar. If you want myself or Eddie or, or Nathaniel to pray with you, we'll be right here to pray with you. You know, and um, you, you just may need to talk to God. Let God deal with you as he will tonight. It's Holy Spirit speaking to you. Let's all stand.